0: So when we used to offer a month-long retreat on Maui every August, we had a lot of um, paraphernalia, like all the sitting cushions in the hall and all the kitchen cooking equipment and stuff like that that we we owned, that we would take to the B&B to set up for having a retreat for 40 or 50 people for a month. At the end of the month, we would have to pack it all up and take it back to a storage room that we had at the house. And I would always get the local Maui sangha to help, pack everything up, take it back, put it in the storage, and put it away for until the next retreat. So at the end of one busy day of taking everything down and putting it all all back in storage. At the end of the day, while we're all just kind of looking around, seeing what we'd accomplished, I saw uh, a box of kitchen things left over. So I went over to the box and I looked through and I picked up a box of cookies and I said to my friend Duke, who was helping to uh, put things away, I said, Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, chocolate-chip-less, chocolate-chip cookies. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, there are some things in life I can do without. (laughs) So uh, I want to speak tonight about those things in life we can do without. As I mentioned earlier, the paramis are the forces of purity, the ten forces of purity in the mind that is free of attachment, aversion, and delusion. And so we have generosity, which obviously is a practice of letting go of attachment, letting go of material possessions, and we can be We can be generous with our time, we can be generous with our knowledge, we can be generous with our heart. And there's renunciation itself is one of the forces of purity, which is just doing without, not to put ourselves in a state of deprivation but to really look closely at what what is it that we're holding on to that we no longer need, possibly. Equanimity, another force of purity in the mind, is that non-reactive mind that is connected to experience, but it is let it has let go of a partisan reactive relationship to events, phenomena, experiences and we might say that equanimity is is learning how to really let go of dramatizing ordinary human events we we make a big deal out of what are essentially ordinary common occurrences that everyone experiences and yet when it happens to us we make a big deal of it our society really doesn't encourage a balanced mind in Relationship to national, civic, political, economic events. <laughs> the, the public discourse in our country and around the world really is is shrill and partisan. And so, to let go of that shrill, partisan, opinionatedness is the practice of equanimity. So, all of the forces of purity are practices of letting go, as are all of the Eightfold Path Factors. So I'm going to be speaking about letting go because, as I mentioned in the talk on the Four four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth is that craving (laughs) attachment is the cause of dukkha. Okay. If craving is the cause of dukkha, then... Craving, letting go, which is the opposite of craving, is the cause for the end of dukkha. When we come to a retreat like this, we take this period of time to let go, temporarily, to let go of our usual uh, distractions, habits food, friends. And it's not because we don't like or don't need food, friends, habits, and, and the things of life, but that we know that there is, and what we find here, is not so much great things to enjoy, but we find another way of relating to the conditions of our life, rather than obsessive, compulsive you know, addictive, physical, mental, emotional behaviors, we find another way here, a little more peaceful, a little more relaxed, a little more letting go. And we see that, oh, the enjoyment of life or the the peace of mind that's possible comes not from having, acquiring, and getting more in an obsessive-compulsive treadmill grinding way, but actually from letting go. You know letting go is has this has this way of gaining something by letting go. It's like, you know, emptying out a closet. You know, you let go, you let go, you let go, let go. And what do you gain? More space. What we do in this practice of letting go of the thoughts that we come across, the emotional reactions, old memories, old plans, obsessions, addictive behavior, what we we feel and the benefit is more space in our heart, more space in our mind, less urgency, less compulsivity. So the practice of renunciation is the practice of letting go. But it is not to deprive ourselves of anything essential. It's not to impose an ascetic, painful discipline upon ourselves. The bodhisattva lived as a prince, or lived quite regally for twenty-nine years. Then he undertook six years of these austere, severe ascetic disciplines torturing his body severely and and found that neither indulgence nor severe restriction was the path to freedom the path to liberation but it was the middle way something in between indulgence and deprivation So it's important that we understand that letting go doesn't mean doing without. You know, even though the prince, when he left the palace and went out into the village, saw what are called the four heavenly messengers, one of them was um, a renunciate, a mendicant, someone who was living very simply in life, someone who was living with without all the baggage and accoutrements and entanglements of um, what most people live with. And he saw that here was someone who was living a full life, a full inner life, but not consuming all that was available. And I think that each one of us has recognized within ourselves an aspiration for living more simply, uh, living more grounded, stepping off the treadmill a little bit or slowing it down um, as a way of nourishing something that we feel quite deeply within ourselves. So I think there's something of an archetype of the renunciate in each one of us that calls for attention and can be developed, can be manifest. So renunciation is letting go. Letting go of attachment. The Buddha said if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness that is greater, then the wise are those that pursue the happiness which is greater. That's not always easy there was a famous experiment done now more than 20 30 years ago where these uh, psychological researchers tortured these poor little kids put them in a room with a candy bar or something and said I'm gonna give you this candy bar you can it's yours you can have it I'm gonna I'm gonna step out for a little while but if you don't eat it before I get back I'll give you another one so, left the room, turned around, watched them through a one-way mirror. And some of the kids are just like, take that candy bar, rip open the wrapper, eat it, <laughs> got it, okay? And some would just say, no. they just wait, because they wanted two. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were just like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, they'd pick it up, they'd look at it, they'd... <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like, playing with it, but... You know, wanting it, but not able to just let it go. They followed up on those kids, you know, 20, 30 years later, to see how they turned out. I'll let you do the research. (laughs) (laughs) So the Buddha, the, the Bodhisattva, living as a prince... Then undertook these ascetic disciplines, found the way, found what's called the middle way. His teaching is the middle way between indulgence and deprivation. <coughs> and someone here has asked the question too. Can we can we practice this practice within the context of our everyday life? Civic, social, domestic, professional uh, responsibilities. And of course, we can. It is a training of mind, and to the extent that we can find the effort, find the support for training our mind, you can do that anywhere. But as I like to acknowledge, it is easier to learn to drive a car in an empty parking lot than on the freeway. If you try to learn to drive a car on the freeway, it's... it's there's, there's some danger in that. There's some limitations. It, it's not so easy. You, you might succeed, but if you practice in an empty parking lot first, and you get some skill, then you can move on to the freeway of life and not have such a threatening time. So we come to retreats like this, and we practice the Dharma. We practice renunciation. We practice letting go of all that we can, so that when we hit the highway of our life we've got some momentum in learning how to let go. So Dilko Kensei Rinpoche is a famous well-known just great Tibetan teacher of the last century and he says of renunciation now this is the high bar of renunciation. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence and with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification approval profit and status We have all felt wearied by this societal push to achieve, accomplish, acquire, become, get, whether it's profit, status, recognition, and to gratify our desires. That urge that you feel sometimes, that aspiration that you feel sometimes to just step off the treadmill is the aspiration for renunciation. So, how do we do it? How do we how do we practice renunciation? How do we recognize renunciation in life? What is the value of it? Well, first, you know, renunciation has this connotation of being painful, difficult, unpleasant it's just like... It's not something you kind of get excited about when you hear about it. But let me ask you. You remember when you were a child or teenager and you had a favorite sport or toy or bike or friend or musical instrument that was the event of your day? And as much as you could play with that or ride that bike or play with this person or play with a toy whatever it was you were happy and you didn't need anything else that was it where is that toy? now where's that bike? where's that titty bear? where's that card game? in the closet in the cellar in the attic somewhere But it's not in your heart anymore. What happened? Well, we let go. We let go of it. It's not that we let go of it as an object, so much as we let go of well, what was formerly the happiness of indulging in that with that thing. We outgrew it. And we outgrew it and we didn't even notice it. It wasn't painful. we just saw that our life went in another direction we found something else to replace it uh, it was no longer so renunciation doesn't need to be always that kind of you know, grit your teeth you know resistant painful i got to do it at all we outgrew it we haven't stopped growing Sometimes we get this assumption. We just assume that now that we're adults, or we're, we're adult age, we think that you know this is it. This is this is who we have become. But we haven't stopped growing. And in fact, what there are many of us here that are no longer in their early adult years there's some i still in the early adult years good for you will see but there's some of us that are no longer in our early adult years and what we were infatuated with consumed with obsessed compuls- compulsive about is may no longer be what we're actively using pursuing doing I had this experience are you, I'm a dead I used to like to travel to the dead shows and as much as I could get to them, then I would go. And I just loved their music, listened to the music, real... obsessed. <laughs> so, then I got involved in the Dharma. Started practicing Dharma and doing retreats. And then after I'd been practicing Dharma for, I don't know, five or six years, I had this amazing conjunction of conditions that was just fantastic. I was doing a two-week retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. Fourteen days of just calm down, clear out, open up, get sensitive, the last night of which the dead were playing in Providence just an hour away. (laughs) (laughs) What could be better? Calm down, open up, get really sensitive, You know, sensory deprivation for 14 days, go to a show. It was unbearable.
1: It was just
0: unbearable. It was so loud and so crowded and so impactful and so overstimulating. It was just unpleasant. It was just unpleasant. In some ways, I had outgrown my attachment to that kind of um, stimulation, that kind of experience. I did not grow the dead music, appreciating the dead music altogether. I still like it. But we change without knowing it. And so we may still hold these ideas in our mind of, I like this, I do that, I, you know. This person's my friend, this behavior is something I like to do, blah, 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 blah. And yet, these are just accumulated baggage in the attics of our life somewhere that are just hanging around. Kind of uh, siphoning off a little energy, a little time that. We no longer really well that no longer serve our exasperation. We've outgrown them. So it's it's really useful to do a survey just to take a look at what is it you're holding on to? What is it what ideas do you have about yourself left over from early adult years that just no longer serve your purpose? Fun when they fun, meaningful, beneficial, whatever, earlier in life but no longer. Can we really, you know, kind of look at them and see, this no longer serves me, and let it go? Really, intentionally. Not that you have to let it go, but just intentionally acknowledge that you have to let it go. Growing up requires wise choices. And as we grow older... We may need more wisdom. You know, I haven't given this talk in quite a while, and I've grown older since I last gave it. Of course. But I'm reflecting on, I'm just just thinking now of like, you know, as you get older, those of you who are recognize you're getting older, uh, different things come into view as being important. And We have to let go of a lot of the beliefs and behaviors of (coughs) our early adult years. And more age-appropriate, you might say, um, acknowledgement of the changes that we're all going through. Another way that we experience renunciation, letting go, the benefits of renunciation, letting go, is when we modify our behavior because of what we see it doing. I remember when I was in my 20s, I guess, yeah, early, late teens, early 20s, I used to smoke tobacco and other things, but tobacco. (laughs) And you know how it is when you smoke, it's, it becomes a habit. There's a couple of times a day when you really enjoy it, the first cigarette in the morning or after a meal or whatever, you, it's really good. Other than that, it's just habit. And then the Surgeon General come out with a report that said, hey, by the way, you keep smoking like that, this is what your lungs are going to look like. And you go, oh my God, I don't think I, that's kind of scary. And we get the news that you know smoking can be bad for you. Well, it took a while, but eventually the knowledge that there was a danger to smoking outweighed my attachment to the pleasure of smoking. And it was easier then to give up. There was some physical, you know, got to get through a few weeks, but the power of the understanding encouraged letting go. And so when we come to the Dharma... We hear, for example, the teachings on um, the precepts. You know, undertaking the training to refrain from acting in ways that harm others. Harms oneself or harm others. And while that may not be our... We may not have a strong commitment to that when we hear it. Well, once we start paying attention to keeping the precepts, or not keeping the precepts, or playing the gray game where it's kind of, you know, more or less uh, keeping the precepts, then you see what it does to your mind. You see that, oh, it's... There are some consequences for... And the consequences of not keeping the precepts is, you know, anxiety and fear and uh, pain, suffering, or the potential for suffering. So it's out of fear of the consequences of smoking... Give it up. Fear of the consequences of not keeping the precepts supports keeping a commitment to them, letting go of those behaviors that, well, cause harm to yourself or others. The Buddha said of this kind of renunciation, he said, even though the pleasure is great, the regret is greater. It is easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult to do that which is truly beneficial and good. We know that. It's hard to live with it, it's hard to live by that sometimes, but we know that. Renunciation is letting go of disbelief, letting go of the naivete, letting go of unwillingness, to practice the Dharma in in the ways that we know. So when you come on retreat, of course we take these these five precepts and it's not, let's let's face it, it's not that difficult to keep the five non-harming precepts. But we have the option to do another three which are not non-harming precepts, they're precepts of renunciation to refrain from the um, eating solid food afternoon
1: well
0: yeah it it's some it may be some discomfort, it may be you know just you know, letting go of a little pleasure pleasurable blast and later in the day, but not that difficult, but it's hard to do, not because we get hungry, but because well, we can do it, so why not do it or to to you know the, the second one the um entertainment and adornments and whatnot. Well, we, we, we could say, okay, I'm going to put away the cell phone, I'm going to put away reading, writing, I'm going to put that all away, I'm not going to adorn myself, I'm only going to look in the mirror once. I could do that, but why? Why bother? I mean, uh, it's just an inconvenience. But it's it's not just because it's an inconvenience or because it's some woo-woo-wow-wow thing to do. It's a training of the mind. Can the mind let go you mind let go of habits. If not, we're we're addicted, and we know that. <coughs> or the, the third precept is to refrain really from indulging in excess comfort, for example, high in luxurious beds and chairs, sleeping, laying down other than in the evening when you sleep. Not that, not that difficult, and you know, it, it's it's comfortable. So why why bother? Well, why not? it's a training of the mind. We're talking about training the mind. We're not talking about just being comfortable. And many many of you've heard me say comfort is not a goal worthy of your efforts. To walk this path of awakening there's going to be some discomfort, but that shouldn't stop us from the ben- from gaining the benefits of walking the path. Now, this simplifying our life, taking the precepts, simplifying our life here on retreat, taking three additional precepts, is... we don't get a lot of encouragement for it in our life, simplifying our life. We get a lot of encouragement for doing more, having more, becoming more, filling up our schedule, filling up our... everything. (coughs) As if the fuller the better... And and we know that's not true. When I used to teach the um, three-month retreat, which I taught at IMS for 17 or 18 years, it would end around December 12th or 15th, 15th or 16th, something like that. So I'd get home after three months away, you know, a week or ten days before Christmas. And there, piled up on my kitchen counter was three months worth of holiday catalogs. And honest, sometimes there were 200 or more catalogs. And I'm not a big catalog order, but they, they get they get your number. This was back when you, they did catalogs more than online. And here was 100 catalogs, you know, uh, 60 pages each with a dozen things on each page that I had never needed up until then. <laughs> And the impulse, the impulse in our hungry mind, the hungry ghost within us is, i got to look through every one of these catalogs just in case there's something I now need. <laughs> no, we don't. Because when we look at a catalog, when you get a catalog, you know, really, really, we should just take take that catalog and say, thank you, Put it in the recycle bin. Don't even look. Because what happens is, you look at this catalog, you turn it open to one page, and you look at six or eight things on this page, and your mind scans quickly. And it says yes, no, or maybe to every item on the page. And you look at the next page. Yes, no, or maybe to every item. Turn the page. Yes, no, maybe. Any page that's got something on it, you turn over the corner. If it's got two things on it, you turn over two corners.
1: (laughs) You know, just because
0: you don't have to look again, you just look for the pages that the corners to go. At the end of, you know, 60 pages, your mind is so dissipated, you've left a little piece of your mind on every page, and you're so, you know, kind of no strength of mind, you'll buy something just to get rid of that feeling. The mind is totally dissipated. No center to the mind at all. It's strung out over all those pages. That's not renunciation. Letting go is... You know, there's this moment of... Ooh, what if... Yeah, let it go. Let it, let it go. What if... Yeah, but... Uh, ooh, uh. That's the pain of, of letting go. It's like, what if... But once it's over, you don't have to deal with those 250 things. Say yes, and yes, yes or no to them. Okay, you know, one time... Came back from the three-month course, and Kamala and I went to went out to eat down at one of the resorts, Maui, just to kind of get back. And we had a nice meal, resort meal, too expensive, but good food. At the end of which, we looked at the dessert menu, looked through, and we found the chocolate dessert, which was chocolate covered chocolate chocolate chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know what I mean, chocolate. So, I so, said, okay, we ordered chocolate, <laughs> ate this chocolate, and, and the good meal that we had just enjoyed was kind of like, was just enough, was totally ruined by overload. Chocolate bomb, gut bomb. Okay. So, in, in utter ultimate renunciation wisdom, I blurted out, I am not going to eat chocolate this whole next year. And kind Kamala of said, what? <laughs> I said, I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. She said, you've got to be kidding. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> she said, well, if you're gonna, not going to eat chocolate, neither am I. So, undertook a year of no chocolate. There's, there's something to be learned about taking on a kind of a, a renunciation like that for a limited period of time.
1: <laughs>
0: First of all, we made One exception if we were on the plane, happened to get an upgrade, and they served chocolate ice cream or chocolates, we would accept that. <laughs>
1: That's the exception.
0: I don't know if it happened. The other thing is, key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> but really, the the, the the Dharma learning is, the power of a Unshakable commitment is unbelievable. If you, if you can get to that place where you just say, that's it, done. Yeah, there was, there was some tempting, temptation in the first, you know, the first few possibilities, but after that, out of mind. Didn't give it a thought. We can do this with other things in our life that we don't think we can give up. But when the wisdom is there to say, you know what, this is not serving you something to consider is just making that kind of resolve. Resolve, Aditana, resolve, resolution, determination is another one of the the paramis. Purifying the mind of dissipation doubt, wavering, procrastination. So we can let grow up, we can let go because of something like Sila, we understand the danger of something, we can let go of uh, habits. In practice, as we develop mindfulness, Somewhere I've got the answer here. Okay, here we go. Really what we're asking ourselves, is this something I can do without? Whether it's chocolate pie or some behavior that's not conducing to your to your life. Don Juan again says about this decisive commitment to follow our aspiration. He says to attain this aspiration. For this a spiritual warrior needs prowess, strength, and above all else sobriety. These three together define elegance. Can we practice with, when he says sobriety, he means like, keep your feet on the ground. You get it? Another way that we practice renunciation here is through mental discipline. And it's through the development of mindfulness, as you you know, that you see your obsessive mind. You see your compulsive, addictive thinking habits. Right? And every time you see them, we have to let go. And sometimes it's easy, we just see it and it stops. But sometimes we have to keep the the mindfulness strong or we'll fall back in, so to speak. Fall back into that train of thought, that ruminating, planning, scheming, strategizing to get, to have, to become, to do whatever it is that we want to do. And so this mental discipline is purifying the mind, letting go of the resort to the torments that we have cultivated for years. This is, this is difficult. This, this is where a lot of practice on the path takes place, and it's very difficult, where we're cultivating mindful awareness... And we see these compulsive, obsessive habits of mind. And we can't let go. It is mindfulness that sees them, but it's wisdom that lets them go. And so, so much of our practice is right here, where we've got the, we're cultivating the mindfulness, and we see, and we see, and we see. And as much as we would like to have it stop your whole comment question this morning, this afternoon. It's like, I'd like to get this mind to shut up, you know, get rid of it. Yeah, we would. But you know what? You can't get rid of it. Wisdom, as Saito Ateshani says, wisdom does the job. And for that wisdom, we have to be mindful again and again and again and again and again. And it's painful. It's painful to see over and over and over again these habits that just are so seemingly intractable. It takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of willingness, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of commitment, it takes a lot of sobriety, and it can be done. We can see it. We can see even in the, even in the week that we've been here, the habits that you were obsessed with on Monday or early days of the retreat, not quite as not quite as tenacious right now. Even in a few days, you can see it. Now, just extrapolate this practice from six days to six years. You can see, it can be done. But it takes that kind of continuity, that kind of commitment, that kind of resolve, that kind of energy. As the mind becomes more purified, moment to moment, of the torments it gets to do what it does, unhindered. This is a secluded mind. I've talked about it before. When the mind can do its work of knowing without any hindrance, it is delighted. It is delightful. It, 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 the energy just flows in a way that is so uplifting, physically, mentally, otherwise. And it's just ecstatic. It can, it can be ecstatic. It can be so delightful to let go. I mean, initially it might be hard. But in time, the reward or the result of letting go is this quality called piti, or joy. And it can be dramatic, or it can be more subtle and it can be more blissful. These spiritual goodies, effortless energy, piercing clarity, penetrating insight, uh, joy, ecstasy, bliss, non-reactivity you know, bubbling faith that just is unshakable. These are all spiritual goodies that come from the continuity of mindfulness. And when they come, they are a confirmation that mindfulness purifies the mind. And when we, when we experience them, we go, ah, it's not a struggle. It's effortless. The mind is clear. The body is light. The mind is light. It's joyful all the time. Well, during this period of time. And we get attached to them.
1: Hmm.
0: So, while they are the result of good practice, they also are an object of attachment. And this too has to be let go of. Bummer. (laughs) But how do we let go of these spiritual goodies. We don't have to push them away. We don't have to suddenly think badly of them. We don't have to uh, judge ourselves for being joyful and faithful and energetic and non-reactive. We just have to see them in the moment. That this is what has arisen. Let it be there. Let it come. Let it go. Don't hang on. This is hard. This is harder than we can imagine, but because we've had to work so hard to get this momentum for these spiritual goodies to arise, that we don't want them to go away. We want them to stay, but we can't. If we if they stay, we don't progress. We just cultivate an attachment to bliss, you know, attachment to joy, attachment to whatever they are. And it happens in the moment. It happens in the moment of experience where we just forget to take notice of them. And instead, we just indulge in them. This is subtle. But it's what we do with with the torments. We indulge in anger, we indulge in fear, we indulge in depression, rather than take notice of it. So the same technique of mindful awareness is required for the spiritual goodies as was required for the torments of the mind the same relationship to cultivate that ability to just see it be with it don't indulge in it don't spin a story of how good it is or how bad it is or just it's just this moment it's just this moment it's just this moment and in time actually I don't want to say they go away, that's not true. They mellow out and something better arrives. How's that? <laughs>
1: this,
0: is, <laughs> this is what Upandita used to say. You know, as long as you hang on to this joy and this bliss, and you know, I'm not going to progress. He says, if you can learn to let go, something better will come. Hard to believe, but it's true. this letting go of uh the spiritual goodies is not feeling gratified by them non gratification as long as we feel gratified and like have this sense of ah i've done it or i've got it or it's it, you know you get that feeling of satisfaction with it we're not seeing the dukkha characteristic and that will keep you stuck And so, learning how to let go of gratification, that's important. I know this is subtle, but it's it's true. When we do, as we do, learn to let go of gratification, the mind will become more equanimous, more balanced, less reactive, less indulgent in everything, anything. And it's here where the insight into the three characteristics become more predominant, pronounced, continuous. And so we see. And what we're letting go of when we see these characteristics, when we see impermanence, when we see the fleeting nature of phenomena, we let go of anything being solid. We let go of anything being substantial, if you will. When nothing endures, what's to hang on to? Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master at the San Francisco Zen Center, a long time ago, he says, "True true renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in knowing that they go away. It's the understanding of impermanence which is if we truly understand that things just go away, they're impermanent. This is renunciation. We let go. We don't hang on, knowing full well that it's impermanent. So too, when we, as we see and we realize the truth of dukkha, that all phenomena has this characteristic of either being painful or unstable and therefore um uh, Insecure, unstable as a as a basis for our own happiness, or it's oppressive. It's just incessant and you know, kind of impinging on our sense doors constantly. When we when we see that this is the characteristic of all phenomena, and it's not easy to see, as you know. But when we see it, it's like you don't choose. The mind wouldn't choose to hang on to anything that has that characteristic. And so it just lets go. It lets things slip through the mind rather than grasp them with the mind. Nessa Rabicore wrote about the teaching of suffering, Dukkha, when she says, this is the teaching of suffering, if you allow it. It's as if there is in one great stroke the world you occupy divides itself into... Here is what matters, everything else not. It's either suffering or not. Black or white. And the Buddha too said, I teach suffering in the end of suffering. Can we see that in our own life? The anatta characteristic, the third uh, uh, universal characteristic of all phenomena, another letting go. Letting go of this idea that there is some enduring entityness to anything, let alone this being. And it's seeing, when we see, how ephemeral, evanescent, changeable, conditioned this sense of a self is, or anything, any experience we have, is just comes together due to a conjunction of conditions that last for a moment or two, and then it starts changing and morphing and it's no longer what it was it has no inherent essence when you see that uh, repeatedly over and over and, and in every moment's experience the mind is not going to reach the mind is not going to try to hold on to something that is like mist or something that is evanescent like you know bubbles of dry ice or something there's just nothing of substance there. And the mind knows this. We might resist it. We, in our, you know, little mind, going, yeah, 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 but I want, I want, I want. It. But the mind sees it's this, this, this not there. There's nothing there. The letting go is easy. The letting go comes from understanding these three characteristics. But it's gradual. You know, we we've all seen impermanence. We've all seen painfulness. We've all seen... Uh, some some degree of the inherent changeability of everything. We've seen it in time with practice. That understanding saturates our mind, and we live from that place. It's not a belief. It's not like you say, "Oh yeah, I, I believe things change." It's like you're living from the experience of everything is constantly changing. You're living from the experience of, you know, what this too has the dukkha characteristic. Okay, we'll put up with it as much as we have to, but we're not going to hang on to it any longer than necessary. In the Diamond Sutra, we get this encouragement of how to... how to relate to the phenomena of our life. See all of this world as if a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, or a dream. All the experiences of this life. No more substantial than a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. This wisdom, this insight wisdom, let's go a lot of holding on to wrong ideas about ourselves, about life, about the whole meaning of it all. But from this place of equanimity and understanding, this is again, as I mentioned in the Four Noble Truths talk, this is where the mind can let go of everything. Letting go of the known. Anything that's known, letting go. And the mind can do that. And the mind can fall into this unconditioned, not made of anything, called nibbana. This is, I guess we'd have to say, the ultimate letting go. And it has consequences. It has consequences for our liberation, for our eventual uh, full awakening that is worth all the effort you've made this week and more. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit and status. Can we live that simply? That's what this path of awakening asks of us can we live simply we don't have to become inhuman we don't have to cut off from our humanity in fact we come become more fully human more in touch with the way things are the necessities of life the essential the essentialness of life rather than the baggage that is just wearying and disillusioning and not contributing to real happiness. This is the practice of renunciation. This is what this practice is. It's the whole path of learning how to let go and learning how to grieve the loss of everything that has gone so that we can be more fully here, more fully present with this next moment, which is... If you want a miracle in Buddhism, it's this next moment it's a miracle that we can be here for this and recognize it. So sit a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
1: dharmaseed.org slash donate.